You're listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast, a podcast covering the world of Mormon arts and examining the intersection between faith and creativity. For more Mormon arts news and interviews, please visit mormonartist.net. My head though goes with the blackbird song I move. I must move on. Welcome to the Mormon Artists Podcast. I'm Catherine Morris. Today we're interviewing visual artist Madison Colvin. Hi, Madison. Hello. Madison Colvin was born in 1990 in Nuremberg, Germany, to two American Army doctors. She received her bachelor's degree in painting from Whitworth University in 2008 and has lived and worked in Utah since 2009. She graduated from BYU with her MFA in painting in 2013. In 2013 and 2014, she was the artist in residence at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art in Salt Lake City. And she currently teaches painting at BYU. Did I get everything, Madison? Um, yeah, I teach uh, drawing and, and design and some other things at BYU, but uh, everything else is like 100% accurate. So Okay, so not painting. Well, I teach, I teach like a, a variety of classes. I'm sort of just a jack-of-all-trades adjunct there. So Okay. All right, Madison, well, tell me about your background in visual arts and kind of how you got into that. Um, so I think... One of the things that um, got me so interested in art during my childhood was that it was something that I couldn't quite figure out. I was um, um, I was homeschooled, and so I was able to kind of blow through a lot of schoolwork very quickly. Um, but whenever I would draw, I would have all these um, these like problems that I had to solve that weren't so straightforward. I couldn't like figure out a formula and then just uh, apply it to whatever I wanted to draw, and so it was challenging to me in a way that I got really absorbed in, I think. And so, uh, that was really, um, that was really, really exciting to me as a kid to be able to like create images, but have like the challenge of not knowing how to draw something. So I don't know. <laughs> so when you went to, um, I think you started out at a community college before you transferred to Whitworth. Did you know going into it that you wanted to do visual arts? I actually thought I was going to be an English major uh, for the first little while. I'm also a pretty heavy reader, and I thought, oh, English major. But then I took a drawing class, and the teacher kind of said, well, you're going to be an art major, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, yes, actually. <laughs> That's really, great. I will be an art major. It kind of, um, it was kind of like a, just a very like arbitrary decision almost, but uh, I'm glad I did it. Um, I went to community college for a couple of years and did all my gen eds. And uh, definitely the art classes were the ones where I felt like the most at home. So, Uh-huh. That's neat. Okay, well, let's get right into some of your works. Um, Madison is showing two pieces right now at the Springville Museum of Art, their religious and spirituality exhibit. Um, so let's talk about those. Okay, you have two there but they're kind of part of this series um, that you've titled Typologies. One of them is called Templates London, and it is 
a series of drawings of churches in London that have been drawn over each other to make this kind of composite piece. And let's talk about that one. Okay. Um, well, the, the whole reason I was kind of interested in this um, this series of this typology series was um, Barrington Hilla Becker are these uh, German artists who, uh, I'm, I believe they're German, but they sort of like would go around documenting buildings uh, that had very specific purposes or meanings that kind of felt removed from their contemporary setting. So like water towers that were no longer in use or um, like very specific uh, types of like German architecture um, from the Middle Ages that like were still in existence, like barns and things like that. And um, and they would just have these very like stark images. And I was really interested in this idea of like it, gathering all that information and kind of presenting it. And so I thought, well, I'll I'll do that with churches in London because that's architecture that feels like especially um, like it, it felt like it really resonated with me and that I had um, access to it. You know, I was I was in London at the time. Um, so I would go around walking around and sort of documenting the interiors and exteriors of these um, of these churches. And uh, I guess I got all these drawings on vellum and I sort of looked at them and I said, what am I going to do with all this information? I think I can't I can't just present it because um, that doesn't feel like it um, expresses what I'm interested in about the churches, which is kind of like the what they have in common you know like the when you put that information side by side it feels more like it indicates difference rather than similarity and so I essentially redrew all of these churches on top of each other so that I could kind of get the shape of whatever felt similar about them onto paper Mm -hmm. so yeah if that makes sense (laughs) yeah that's interesting um when we talked about Previously, in a in a discussion at the Springfield Museum of Art, where I met Madison, we talked about um, what emerged was this kind of vertical space. Um, yeah, it, it, it's very dark too because there are all of these overlaid on each other. What what was that process of discovery like for you? Um, well, um, kind of living in a Western landscape and seeing all these buildings that are very like landscape oriented, kind of like like horizontal and, and sprawling. Um, I thought that the verticality of, of the churches was really interesting. The kind of, I mean, I, I, like spire, aspirational, they share like a linguistic root, right? And so there's there's this feeling of like Tower of Babel reaching towards heaven in a lot of European churches that you don't necessarily get with like Western Mormon churches, um, which are more sprawling. And so I was kind of just uh, excited uh excited to explore that that like vertical aspect of it or that um that like um, it's almost like a triangular shape that emerges because you have this kind of like stacking up to a steeple thing mm-hmm. happening I don't know um it's kind of more I, I think I talked to you about this but it's kind of more uh body shaped if that makes sense like like a vertical shape, it like we call it portrait format, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like it has more to do with the human body or like the shape of a person, and um, I think that kind of reflects um, the the aspect of those churches that is more like person oriented. The it's more like uh, 
interested in the individual's relationship to the architecture rather than the individual's relationship to the other individuals around them, like the, the community thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it seems kind of generalized to say, but I think um, those churches are oriented more towards worship, like the, in, the relationship of the individual to God in this kind of like vertical looking upward sense as opposed to Mormon churches, which are more oriented towards the community, there's this sort of like horizontal looking sideways mm-hmm. um, in in those places, if that makes sense. Yeah. So on your website, you also have a similar kind of composite work with LDS temples. So tell me about that. Um, yeah, so I think that as worship spaces, temples have more in common with churches than like our meeting houses do. Um, and, and by churches, I'm speaking broadly about like other Christian churches. Uh, I really feel like saying the, a Mormon church has more to do with either the institution of the church or with um, like, I mean, like more to do with the institution than it has to do with the architecture, if you know what I mean. The, mm-hmm. the architecture is very much like it's a meeting house. It's not really a church. You know, there's like if you play basketball in a place, it doesn't really feel like a church. Church. Mm-hmm. It's a meeting house, you know, it's a community, it's like a community center. And so, um, and so like the temples as like sacred spaces, I think are more, are more loaded and kind of the architecture becomes more, um, like codified in ways that are, that have variation. You know what I mean? The all, almost all stake centers look identical. And so if I were to do that kind of an image with a stake center, it would just look like a stake center yeah. with a bunch of extra lines, yeah. you know, it's like, Stake centers, there's not there's not a lot of um, like interest in the architecture because it's purely functional. Mm-hmm. But there is like a worship aspect. To, I mean, there's like a huge worship aspect to being um, in the temple, and so temple architecture feels more um, like worship oriented or sacred. And so I was interested more in that kind of um, variation and repetition in that architecture. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting comment. I hadn't thought about that before, but it's definitely true. Or chapels are pretty utilitarian and it's kind of a funny contrast then when you look at the temples and we spend a lot more on them and and obviously the the way they look is a lot more important to us yeah Um, so what did you notice when you when you made that piece um I suppose I just noticed that uh that like it it doesn't seem like there's as much of a of a universal style to building temples uh, the temples that that Gordon B Hinckley put up in sort of the the 90s and the early 2000s right those were um those were a little bit more cookie cutter they look a little bit more like stake centers and i think they're like um i don't know there are at least four or five that are the exact same design just sort of plopped down in different countries mhm um, and and that maybe feels more related to the efficiency model of church architecture, but um, but the temples, you know, as they grew over over decades, kind of went through phases. They went through the weird like mishmash of whatever's going on with the Salt Lake Temple, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of like the kind of like we'll make it look like a castle, but also like a uh, like a mountain, but also like a you know, it's just very like it's kind of bizarre, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, um, you have kind of colonial styles, um, with like the St. George temple. It feels, uh, it feels a little bit more like East coast, almost like East coast architecture and, and Manti, I suppose as well. But then you have like the, the modernism of the Provo temple. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think it was a former temple in Ogden. I think there's a new, it like was redecorated to be less, less of like a modernist monolith. But, um, but yeah, so you kind of have these growing pains of different styles of architecture, more, way more represented in the temples than in the meeting houses. Um, so that was kind of cool to see the, like people in different decades grappling with the issue of how do you create a space of worship um, but like within the context of the other architecture that they had to read around them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting about that piece is that I just talked to a photographer, his name is Scott Jarvie, um, and oh, he yeah. went around photographing all of the temples in the United States in every state. And so he has this book, and it's one temple after another, after another, after another. I remember asking him, so how do you keep that fresh? You know, how do you keep going on that? How do you approach that? Because I'm sure they start to look kind of similar. And and a lot of, um, if you're looking for temple art online, a lot of it does look kind of similar. You know, how many ways can you represent the Salt Lake Temple? Well, infinite, but you do get a lot of repetition because it's the same building. But what I think Mm -hmm. is interesting about your piece is that you take that repetition and kind of make a new image out of it and make us look at it again. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I think actually, um, yeah, I think in some sense, like, doing that with stake centers would be kind of useful because I've been in stake centers in, like, in like London that look exactly like something you would find in in you know Idaho, um, mm-hmm. and so the sense of that repetition or that sameness across like across geographic regions I think is kind of interesting. And when it's I think it's mostly when it's kind of compressed into one image that you that you're like oh actually you know there's there is like this this kind of shape that emerges mm-hmm. yeah. or this kind of this kind of like impression that emerges. Yeah, so let's move from from those works, the topologies, to your investigations. These can all be found on Madison's website. Um, so you kind of went um, in a similar direction as far as that repetition goes with a couple of works that you did that were from general conference talks. Um, yes. So tell me about those how did you make them by the way i i was watching them they're videos so they're not still images how did you do that uh yeah so i um i took all of the first presidencies and uh apostles talks from a session of general conference i think it was last october's uh general conference and i'm I made them transparent using Final Cut Pro and layered them over each other so that the audio and the video of all the talks is playing simultaneously. Um, And so you get these kind of like transparent, weird, ghostly figures um, moving in and out of this central blob of like pink, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the central pink face. And um, you have the kind of like triangular shape of the white shirt and black tie underneath. And so it's this kind of like um, jagged, transparent um, slice of uh, of a, like a person, but you can kind of see faces moving in and out, or you can recognize a voice that kind of um, comes forward by dint of saying a word louder or emphasizing something. Um, and the re- the reason I kind of made that was because I was watching conference and I was realizing that like the sound, the sound quality of conference is so specific. Like the way they mix the audio, the way they light and shoot the um 
the, the speakers uh, is something that I think if it was if it was totally decontextualized, like if you had somebody just delivering a TED talk up there um, and like wearing normal clothes or, or something like you, like the audio and the video are so specific that it's easily identifiable and kind of codified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to kind of compress all that and see what how it averaged out, like how exactly structured it was and it was pretty amazing that even when you go to like the side view the camera angle is so exactly the same that the faces will layer over each other from the side view and sometimes you'll be like trying to listen to a thread of a of a sentence and it'll and the sound quality is so similar that another sentence will kind of like bleed effortlessly into it Mm um anyway so I kind of I kind of just um overstretched the bounds of my macbook and <laughs> and and layered all these talks over each other and um you know just s- sort of saw what happened i did the same thing with the female speakers i think if i were to change anything about those pieces i would just want to have all of the speakers from the entire conference hmm. uh, layered over each other just just for like ob- objectivity's sake a little bit mm-hmm. you know instead of selecting so subjectively um but i think that might crash my computer so <laughs> I, have, I have i haven't done it yet I think it, I think it would overstep the bounds of what um, my processor can do. So, yeah, well, it was interesting watching that because, in a way, it was a microcosm of what it's like to watch four, five sessions of conference. Um, because you know you can only process so much when you're watching conference and only so much will stand out, like maybe exactly. one or two or three talks. And what's interesting is that, that while I was watching it, I was trying to, you know, I was kind of having that experience of, wow, this is, this is that a compressed experience of what it's like to watch general conference where it's, it's lovely and beautiful. And I feel the spirit and I think about Jesus Christ and I, I love these men and these women um, but they do kind of blend together. And it, yeah. but I, and I also, what was interesting about, about that piece is to see how automatic it was for my brain to try to pick out individual individuals. So I yeah. kept looking for, oh, I think that's President Iring's face. Oh, I think I saw it again. Or like I heard a word, you know, and was trying to identify the word. Yeah. Um, still like ho- trying like to... Holland weaves around a lot. <laughs> it kind of like rocks I didn't back notice that. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's neat I, that you can kind of, it's the composite, but, but there is, you can kind of see by compressing that information, you can kind of see the individuality at the same time of the different speakers. Yeah. Even though it kind of like, it like goes into this mass and I, I don't know if it's cause I'm like a bad Mormon or what, but I have never been able to easily identify general authorities. <laughs> by, by especially by their voices like if I'm not watching the video that like has a little name that pops up at the bottom I'm just like I uh, search me you know Iring and and Monson like some of the people with more specific voices Oaks mm-hmm. I guess like I can tell them but the rest I'm just like I don't know <laughs> so so for me that was part of how um, that video was kind of how I see conferences as kind of like unified front of voices um and I probably shouldn't say that anymore because I like live in a ward in Salt Lake where a lot of general authorities live. So, <laughs> oh, I think they would find the piece really interesting. Oh, I hope so. My mom was like, "You're gonna get excommunicated." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know. She's kind of a she's kind of a negative Nancy about about uh, 
me using church uh, images and, and ideas in my art. But I think like I think that if you're a Mormon and you're interested in religion, you need to think about Mormonism. You need to not just say like, oh, well, I'll just make things that reference Catholicism because they have a richer visual culture. No, you got to like you got to kind of deal with the visual culture that we have as Mormons. It's not like elaborate and it's sometimes not pleasant, but you got to you've got to kind of like figure out what our images are. Uh-huh. So, so going along with that, I'm going to jump to your <laughs> um your work on swarms, which um oh. I'm just realizing as I'm kind of going through these different um um aspects of your work that they all have a lot to do with repetition so I'd be interested in hearing about that so the swarms are these general kind of oval shapes with a bunch of different animals and you've done this many times with bats you've also done flowers I think so it's not just or plants so it's not just um animal swarming but most of them are animal swarming and I was particularly interested in the honeybee one actually because that was that was, I think, the second image that I ever saw of your work. And immediately I thought, oh, that's that's so Mormon. And yet it's <laughs> a swarm of bees and it's not necessarily Mormon. But but when you're talking about, you know, Mormon visual culture, the honeybee is, is one that's very prominent and one that I've seen um, in older works, I think more as the beehive, but now I'm kind of seeing in younger Mormons' works just the bee. I think it's really interesting. So tell me about your swarms and about the honeybee piece in particular. Yeah. So I think what I find interesting about swarms is that they um, that they are representative of like an individual organism participating in a community of organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, or like, or like exhibiting mass behavior, you know, not necessarily like a, not necessarily like a bee where they are sort of like working together as a group, but, um, even like a flock of birds where they don't really have, seem to have many, uh, social ties that are beneficial to the group as a whole. They, um, they sort of behave communally. They can fly in large groups without, um, without crashing into each other or they like exhibit behaviors that the individual organism is incapable of. Right. Um, or like decision making things like mass migration, I think is also, um, functions that way. And, uh, and, uh, with, with, with plants, like plants that grow rhizomatically where, um, where like a single root system will create a, uh, will create like a multitude of what appear to be plants. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, um, it's this kind of inexplicable sense of like a single thing being part of a greater thing. Um, and I think that that's really interesting because, because as someone who's interested in science, I'm really interested in organisms, but I'm also interested in where like our knowledge of how organisms function stops and where kind of like mysterious things happen. Um, and I mean, I mean, that's kind of related to how, um, religious people often think about nature as this kind of like mysterious thing that we can't, we don't totally understand its ways. And bees, I think we understand a little bit better because they work together as a community to sort of like subsist as a whole. And that's, and I mean, we, we really attach to that, but I think Mormons are also, um, have a lot of sort of myths about swarms. There's the kind of like, well, all Christians believe in like the 
the like plagues of Egypt, right? But um, Mormons more specifically have the myth of the locusts and the gulls, mm-hmm. or like that. I'm I'm calling it a myth because it feels mythic and because there's no like substantiated evidence for it. But it is kind of like it, like a legend or a myth. I think it has like like extreme cultural weight. Yeah, a myth in the sense that the meaning is almost greater than the actual event. Yeah, exactly. Like the like um and it's been it's definitely been mythologized, you know. Mm-hmm. So um and so that kind of um that kind of like interest in like the weird um the weird ganging up of nature, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. I'm kind of and I kind of I kind of like that. It feels kind of um I think people are uneasy about it. And so the swarms are are partly about like kind of the beauty of of these of these repetitive uh, organisms, but they're also kind of, I hope that they're like a little scary or a little unsettling hmm. to see, to see like this large, like ball of insects or this, um, cause they're these kind of like ovoid shapes, um, that feel like, I hope they feel like they have a lot of mass in the center. And so, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I want them to feel like beautiful, but also a little unsettling or a little, um, like a little odd. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I think whenever you see a lot of one kind of animal, it gets a lot scarier than if you just see one animal. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I you know, like seeing one bee and seeing a swarm of bees—that's like a completely different experience. Uh huh. Because because suddenly you get this sense of being outnumbered or being like met with something that has this malevolent force or this or this like group intelligence that's really like frightening. Because mm-hmm. I think as people, we believe we can we can outsmart animals, but not maybe a group of animals. Mm-hmm. That kind of anxiety is present in um, in like the birds, right? Yeah, in the track movie, right? Or in or in like uh, or in the in the sense of like the myth of the or the the story of the locusts and the seagulls, or the story of. Uh, the plagues of Egypt, just these kind of like, oh, somebody's out to get me because all these creatures are here all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You know, but really it's just like a group of creatures is out to get you. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so when you were, when you were doing the one of the honeybee, I mean, it's, it's a pretty obvious thing to do if you're going to be doing a swarm because bees swarm, right? right. right? Um, but there is that, that related, um, meaning for Mormons so did you think about that when you're making the piece I did and I've I've been I've been trying to think about um I've been trying to think about how how the swarm pieces relate to Mormonism um the B the B piece I think is as is the most straightforward example of this but I think Mormons um, like to think of a, the church basically as something almost like a swarming mechanism, you know, like the whole the whole cover the earth um, men- mentality of um, flooding the earth, yeah, flooding, yeah, flooding, like flooding the earth thing. Um, and I think that I think that um, the Mormon mindset in terms of uh, like missionary work feels not dissimilar to. Uh, to that of of how I think I'm thinking about swarming because you have these kind of people and maybe like specifically missionaries who in their own rights have weaknesses and have um, 
like an inability to express themselves purely, but as a group, they become something that is more powerful or more meaningful or more um, like expressive of of a mi- the mission of the the church in general. Mm-hmm. And so and and so like I think I think the bees Mormons love bees because they're hard workers, but I think Mormons maybe need to like question their relationship with bees sometimes <laughs> because. Because like bees also um, like are self-sacrificing in ways that aren't like totally cool. <laughs> they aren't like totally um, healthy, and they all are kind of like subservient to this one, um, not necessarily the queen, but like this one community goal. Mm-hmm. And so, um, while a lot of a lot of what bees do is admirable, they also need to realize that like bees are basically brainless, mm-hmm. um, and like. <laughs> And they're they're industrious, but their lives are also terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, like they they die. I yeah. So um, I don't know. No, no, I love bees. I love bees, and I love Mormons' relationships to bees, and I love Mormons' relationship to the beehive. But I think like um like an industry like an industry basis for the church probably um it like it probably sublimates the the um the identity of the individual that people's aren't that pe- in a way that people aren't totally ready for. I think that like the, um, you know, in the ultimate version of the church, it would behave like a beehive. It would be like a communal situation where, um, everybody is self-sacrificing and they take only what they need. Right. But in, uh, in real life now, um, that's sort of only an ideal and not necessarily a likelihood. Yeah. Well, that's a huge tension between um, Mormonism and Western culture, and I would say between religions and Western culture just in general, because Western culture has become um, culturally a place where the individual is so celebrated and the individual's accomplishments and personal industry, I guess you could say, is is so celebrated. There's a lot of suspicion of, um, of collectivism and a collective culture, and I think... I think that's one of the reasons that some people feel yeah. uncomfortable with organized religion. It's this negative phrase, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I think like um, it's it's very interesting because in a lot of ways the ideal version of Mormon is like a very um, utopian vision. But the issue with a lot of utopias is that they, they completely sublimate the identity of the individual and. Um, and in the contemporary word, world, sublimation of the identity of the, of the individual is like the ultimate death knell for any organization. Like humanism is so, um, and like and I'm talking about humanism not as like oh you know, not not in like the Renaissance sense, but I guess uh, in kind of like the postmodern sense of humanism. But people are so um, so concerned with the rights, identity, and um, and like abilities of the individual that they sort of are suspicious of anything that feels like it casts those to the side or like, and all utopian visions do that. All, all things that, um, that seek for an ideal world or seek for an ideal order of a society, um, cast aside the individual. They, they sort of say like the individual functions as a kind of, um, component in the machinery of, the organization. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that for a lot of people, that sounds evil instead of sounding hopeful. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and for, and for people who like think about utopias or think about, um, idealized societies, that's not evil and that's not horrible. It just is sort of like, um, it, it's kind of an, a nice idea, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a nice thought that everyone can kind of leave their identities behind and become like a part of a functioning whole. Well, um, that, that in a collectivist culture that, that, um, kind of becomes part of your identity. Well, I think that's interesting how that is going back to your swarm pieces that that's kind of reflected that you see they're very beautiful. And it's, it's kind of neat to think about the, in those different swarms, you know, what's going on collectively, that there's this, these, um, individuals that are working together for this common purpose. And if you're thinking about that and you're thinking about just even the visual beauty of it, um, it's a really lovely idea, but you're right that if you're thinking about kind of the, but where are they going and what's their purpose and could it turn on me, you know, yeah. you could also feel kind of nervous about it. So it, a lot of it kind of depends on, I think, um, just kind of how, you know, what part of that you're, you're thinking about when you're, when you're yeah. looking at it, because they both kind of exist in those swarms. So that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's basically just dependent on how, on how, like, how secure you feel, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't, I don't know. Um, I've, I've been, I've been reading a lot about, um, about utopias or like utopian communities, and they like a hundred percent of the time they fail because of the prevalence of the individual over the whole. And what, what works about things like swarms. And probably also what we find terrifying is that the whole will of the group is not controlled by any individual or is not like dependent on the will of any individual. And so Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting thing, but it's also like a terrifying thing because I think as humans, we're kind of incapable of it. Mm -hmm. So people are like, oh, well, why don't you do a swarm of, of like people rushing through a football stadium? And I'm like, well, first of all, I do everything life size, like to scale. So that'd be really hard. But, um, (laughs) but also, but also like, I think that only in very few instances are, do people make, um, like mass communal decisions, um, that are like visible. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. So in your artist statement on your website, you talk about science and religion and how they're both systems of organizing experience and information. Um, but they kind of focus on, on different things. Um, so tell me about that and your thoughts on that and how it plays into your work. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, the reason I'm so interested in specifically science and religion is because they're representative of two, um, thought processes that I'm always going through. And the first is this kind of analytical information gathering side of the brain, which is all about, um, about like factual evidence, um, you know, things, things that can be observed and are, and can be communicated. So I can say like, uh, it is raining outside and that's like a fact. Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's also the kind of, um, the kind of like personal or phenomenological or sometimes spiritual, um, sensation, which is hard, which is way harder to communicate, which is that, um, you know, like it is raining outside in exactly the same way it seemed to rain last year when I was visiting my friend in Seattle, you know, Mm -hmm. or like, like that's very, very difficult to communicate that exact sensation. 
And so the language always kind of fails there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that uh, like art has this unique ability to bridge that gap between, between gathering information and communicating something very direct and uh, also kind of like helping to communicate something that is incommunicable. In other words, like experience or knowledge or like, um, or like personal knowledge. Um, I think that when, um, when people separate spiritual knowledge and empirical knowledge, they're kind of making a mistake. They feel like, they feel like one has to function independently of the other in order for both systems of knowledge to be valid. And I just don't think that's true. I think that, um, like, of course, uh, like empirical knowledge is going to play into how you feel, um, about your testimony, right? Or it's going to feel, it's going to play into, um, like sensation or memory or things that are impossible to communicate. But also, um, like to sense truth to like, to sense an encompassing truth or to posit an encompassing truth in, um, in uh, like empirical observation, you have to kind of do something a little bit sloppy. You have to like posit something that is partly based on emotion or partly based on phenomenological conclusions. You can't just like run data sets and then come to a conclusion. The mind has to kind of make connections that are harder to communicate, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so I, and so like when people say, um, you have to be an idiot to believe that, um, that like the universe is created by big bang. I think that you just are like a sad, sick little person to think that. And then other people who are like, you're a sad, sick little person to believe that a God could create something so complex that like a single individual could create something as complex as the universe. I'm just like, well, what, what are you trying to say? Like, are you just like dissing on people for the sake of dissing on people? Like nobody, nobody's brain has the ability to function in a completely empirical or a completely spiritual way. Like you Mm -hmm. have to, you have to understand that both of those things are part of experience and you can't operate outside human experience. You can't, you're human, like deal with it. You're, you're operating within human experience. Learn to embrace the, the, um, variation without turning it into a false dichotomy. Yeah, well, empirical evidence is always interpreted um, yeah. by a subjective human, and um, there's a human in their mind, and they're all of their experience and their assumptions and and what they believe about the world are interpreting that evidence, and so it's not truly objective. But then on the other side, um, you know, when I, when I'm considering my belief in God and specifically in the truthfulness of Mormonism, um, there are a lot of physical things that I'm thinking about and, um, you know, experience that has been drawn from these um, things outside of myself. I guess you could say it's, yes, there is that, you know, the feeling I've had inside, um, that kind of spiritual feeling, but that's caused by my interactions with other people in the physical world. Yeah. Or, and it's caused by, and like, um, like part of the reason that prayer works is because of, um, like a ritual or repetitive aspect to it that, um, is like measurable by the number of times per day you, you like actually like sit down and, and do it. Right. Or, um, or like, 
reading things in in the Bible will help you um, like affirm things. So there are like there are like very concrete things. You don't live in like a purely spiritual world when you're thinking about the church. I mean, I think one of the advantages of the church is how much emphasis it puts on the like the body or like the the actual limitations of the physical world, right? Mm-hmm. And the presence of the physical world. It it forces you to engage with the community. It forces you to like um, encounter people who are maybe very different from yourself, mm-hmm. or maybe um, who uh, hold opinions that you don't agree with. Or, and it also forces you to um, explore like limitations of your body. It forces you to fast. I mean, it doesn't force you to fast, but like um, like fasting or um, or even just the action of like sitting forever in a church every single week. Um, like I, I think it makes you feel your body and it makes you feel like the reality of the world around you. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the, the fact that the, the church can sort of say like, yeah, you live in a physical world. Like, um, your body is not an evil thing. It's not a thing that your spirit is tied to because you stink and you're a horrible person, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like, it's like, no, like you have physical limitations as a human being and you should learn to like be interested in them and embrace them and kind of like, um, like figure out where, what those limitations are in order to become like a better, a better spirit, you know, in order mm-hmm. to, as a spiritual or an experiential being, you have to engage with the physical world. And I think that like to say that the physical world is just to be experienced spiritually is bogus and you need to like reconsider that. So I guess I'm just making another definitive statement about how to experience mm-hmm. the world, but, you know. Right. Well, then one more theology gets really interesting where we say, actually, everything that's spiritual is physical. God has yeah. a body. Our bodies, not just our spirits, are going to be um, um, divine, but our our bodies are going to at some point be divine too, right? So, yeah. So there's a lot of... It's funny how um, Mormon theology um, makes us kind of maybe a little bit more comfortable than we otherwise would be with um, that that intersection between what some people think as um, very separate dichotomous areas, science and religion. Yeah. Because I think a lot of a lot of religious thinking says, um, a lot of religious thinking says the body is a lie; it is an obstacle you must get past, and um, and a lot of scientific thinking says the spirit is a lie; it is an obstacle you must get past. And I and I think that one advantage to Mormon theology is it does not say that either the body or the spirit is a lie; they are one and they belong together and they um, influence each other and they form they form like the soul, right? The mm-hmm. the mind and the body together form the spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. So. so, Madison, what are you working on right now? What are we going to see next from you? Um, I have been, I, I've been thinking a lot about, um, about Mormon communities and, uh, and Mormon architecture, thinking about the function of the meeting house and the function of the temple and how the architecture affects the function. So, um, I hopefully will be working on some 
like potential utopian or idealized designs for meeting houses and temples, like um, things that probably aren't functional, but are sort of uh, fictional, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. I'm really um, interested in the um, in the architecture, like the, the speculative architecture of Etienne-Louis Boulet, who's this like 19th century, um, like, dreamer basically who was who was thinking about all this impossible architecture and thinking how wonderful these certain types of monuments would be and i like the idea of of um of people like dreaming about spaces or like thinking about how a space gestures towards a more idealized space so when i go to the temple i i see like glimpses of what an ideal temple would be Hmm. you know there i don't think there is any like ideal temple in the world um, and, uh, and when I go to a meeting house, I can kind of like feel what the purpose of a meeting house is or like feel what an ideal meeting house would be. And so I want to, I want to kind of make my own very limited gestures at that. Um, one of the things I really enjoy in my own artwork is when I make things that don't, that don't work kind hmm. of when I make things that, that either don't have a function or, or like show their limitations on their sleeve. And so I'm kind of interested in, in how, um, when I create a work of architecture, it's going to probably not work out as a work of architecture. Like it'll be structurally unsound or it'll be, um, or like there won't be any bathrooms or something like that because (laughs) I will have forgotten that. But, but it's still like a gesture towards an, towards an ideal or towards like a kind of a dream about a place. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know. So, cause, cause it's going to be grounded in a lot of research on meeting houses and on temples, mm-hmm. but, but I'm not, I'm not an architect. I'm not at all an expert. And so it's going to be this kind of like kind of naive place that I think probably is not dissimilar to how, um, to how like early Mormons thought about the temple is this kind of like, they just kind of were sitting around saying like, what's it going to be like? What, what could it, what could it be like? Um, and I, I kind of want to get back into that mindset a little bit. Well, that sounds fascinating. Madison, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for for interviewing me. I think when I'm able to talk about things, it helps to kind of solidify them or make them more real. So it's always really helpful to me as an artist to talk about what I'm trying to do. So it's very helpful. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast. For more episodes, please visit mormonartist.net. Music for this podcast was adapted from Blackberry's Hedge by Secret Jane. Copyrighted under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States License.